I was looking for the War on 94 trophy. I didn't find any photos of it, but I did find a story that it has been damaged multiple times. <laughs> I'm sure there's potholes that you have to fill, right? They have repaved that stretch seemingly every year since I've moved back out here. Yeah, I think it I think it got hit with a stray practice punt before a game one time. Oh, see, that's where the uh, the Cortica Jug folks have it all locked down. I mean, literally, you never see the jug, and that's probably good considering the sort of things that happen after Cortica Jug games, most often in town, not necessarily at the stadium. Everybody is very well behaved at the end of Cortica. A lot of responsible decisions being made. Let me ask. I mean, obviously, it's been a little while since we've had Monon Bell shenanigans, um, hasn't been buried in an end zone in a little while. What am I trying to say? The the trophy is big enough that you can't really do a lot of damage to it on the sidelines. No, and it's usually pretty well guarded by folks on the sidelines, a lot of people taking pictures with it and whatnot. And then if the game is close, they move it to a neutral end zone because there was a thing one time with the team coming across the field to get it. And so that was the end of that. That's kind of what I was watching for in Little Brass Bell game, to be honest with you. Yeah, but you know, I... What's interesting about North Central and Wheaton to me is that, man, they love to beat each other for sure. But there's there is a lot of genuine respect for those between those two. It's not quite as Hatfield McCoy's as Wabash and DePauw has been over the years. These two teams simply do not hate each other. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 289, season 15, episode 11, you know, the podcast for October 11th of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation every week for D3Football.com. And you know, Pat, when it comes to putting together a great podcast, the key is to stay within yourself and do what you're capable of. When everybody does that, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Greg, I see that you have basically taken to taking this little uh, preamble and kind of delivering it like this with the, uh, the, the notes covering the front of your face, your flip card. I can't see what you're going to say these, these days, and it's kind of funny. I like it. It's even more coach speak somehow when I don't know what's coming. It's all true. It's all true. And that, that, that one dates back to Aristotle, the original coach. Are we sure we should be paying attention to these guys? It's like who died and left Aristotle in charge of ethics? <laughs> Plato. We have, uh, we have definitely... It's very definitely a very uh, Division Three uh, level of discourse on this uh, podcast, that's for sure. Uh, a Division Three level of competition on Saturday. That is not a good transition, but we're going to go with it anyway. A couple of uh, really key games to focus on. They're probably the ones that you may be thinking of, and maybe they're not the only ones. Also, we'll be talking with William Patterson head coach Dustin Johnson for our Tight Five segment coming up in a little bit. Justin Johnson and his Pioneers, 3-3, three and 48-28 three, win against Christopher Newport on Saturday. So we'll be talking to him in a really fast manner so we can get as many things as we can into the five-minute stretch. But some of the other games to look at as we, uh, as we get to that point. Obviously, lots of eyes, lots of implications for this game in La Crosse, Wisconsin on Saturday. Uh, a battle in the WIAC between UW Oshkosh and UW La Crosse. They both come in ranked. They both come in while well, one comes in 
unbeaten. One comes in unbeaten against Division Three opponents. And pretty back and forth for a while before lacrosse just kind of didn't let Oshkosh have the ball for a while. Yeah, this one was really about the grind for lacrosse. They were down 21-7 to at halftime. And the Eagles never really wavered. They stuck with their plan to run the ball with Joey Stutzman and wear down that Titan defense. That plan worked as the Eagles dominated the second half. They scored the game's final 23 points. The telling moment for me in this game was Oshkosh electing to go for a fourth and one on their own 34-yard line with nearly five minutes left in the game. The Titans had just one timeout left for the half, but the choice to go for it there, I think, acknowledges how lacrosse had won the game in the trenches and weren't likely to be stopped from picking up that one or two first downs that they would have needed to run out the last five minutes of the game. Yeah, I have to wonder at this point, obviously, you know, pounding the rock is not a unique uh, form of trying to win games in the WIAC, but lacrosse, you know, previous coach, previous quarterback, right? They they were flinging the ball all around the lot there for a couple of years, and instead they come out on uh, Saturday and they run the ball 46 times comparing to, you know, 23 passes, and obviously talking about holding the ball, a, uh, a bit of a change, but uh, obviously, I mean, so what do we think, right? Does this really elevate them towards whitewater status i'm not going to say to whitewater status because you can't do that until you've actually played them and it's it's hard to do that especially after the saturday whitewater had um but for me this result verifies that lacrosse sort of has the pieces that we've come to expect from wiac contenders they have a great offensive line play they have a great running back in joey stutzman and they have a quarterback receiver combo there in jacob parks and jake simunchak to keep you from cheating too much on that run game Lacrosse looks like the real deal, but they'll have to stay sharp over the next three weeks before they get to go to Perkins Stadiums and take their shot at Whitewater. Yeah, I don't think it'll be any uh, difficulty to stay focused anyway. So they go to Platteville this week and then they host Stout. And, you know, there are no pushovers in the WIAC, obviously, but those two are solidly middle of the pack in the league. I mean, if Stout is the fourth best team in the league, and maybe they're not, maybe they're better than Oshkosh, but that's a really good fourth best uh, team in any league. And if you don't know about the YX somehow go back and read Greg's column from this week that will detail it all for you. So then, and then they go to Stevens point the week before whitewater, that one kind of just screams trap game to me. And, and I'm just going to keep throwing this out there. Now, if lacrosse gets to selection Sunday with, you know, let's presume, let's just check the box for a reasonable loss to whitewater. And the other loss is to the number six ranked team in the country in NCAA division two, then lacrosse better get in the field. Yeah, agreed. It would be it would be difficult to it would be difficult to convince anybody that lacrosse with that resume would not be one of the five best at large teams. Right. And Greg nails it for all of you out there. The playoffs are not the 32 best teams. They are 27 conference champions and then the five best at larges. We've paid a lot of attention to the Liberty League and will continue to do so because there's a lot of little round robin uh, among those uh, four teams left uh, in this uh, season. But also a little bit of focus on the Empire 8 on Saturday. Brockport and Cortland, that's another big rivalry because those are two uh, state schools. They are in the same conference in every other sport, the SUNYAC. But the SUNYAC doesn't have enough football members, so they play now in the Empire 8. These teams have played a bunch of other places over the course of the 20 years uh, that we have been doing this. But, uh, you know, we've been, you know, Brockport was highly touted coming into the year because they'd had some success in the playoffs previously. Cortland is kind of always one of those teams, though, that we have kept an eye on. And, you know, sometimes they come off a five and five year and say, hey, you know, we're probably not a preseason top 25 contender this year. And then they go and go eight and two. Uh, This is another one of those years where Cortland 
is looking like they are now the class of the Empire 8 for a while. This was another contest that turned a corner at halftime. Brockport scored on their first possession with a heavy dose of Jalay Code, and the Golden Eagle defense frustrated what has been a potent Cortland offense early on. They forced two punts and intercepted Breeze Sagala once in the first three possessions. Brockport added a field goal with about three minutes left in the half to go up 10-0. to Cortland had an important response there right before half with their first real sustained drive of the game. They settled for a field goal before intermission. Then they came out with a slightly different game plan in the second half. They got Brees Sagala running around a little bit more in the second half, both designed and not, which helped give Cortland time for their receivers to get open downfield. Sagala scrambled away from pressure on a third and 13 on the first drive of the second half which allowed Kaishan Veal to get behind the Brockport secondary for a 45-yard touchdown that tied the game up. Brockport's next possession ended with a 32-yard pick six by Mark Knoll. And once this Brockport offense gets behind in the second half, they have to get away from Jaleco Code in that successful run game, and they just aren't really an offense that is built to come from behind. Impressive adjustments here for Cortland in this one, and the Red Dragons now look to have a pretty clear runway for the E8 automatic bid. Out west... Um, I've been thinking about this game for a while and uh, Linfield and Whitworth and, and waiting for it to come up because I just felt like Whitworth ended up getting in the poll early because, you know, they you know, they won a game against Carnegie Mellon and they had gone 4-0 in the spring against, right, the same couple of teams because that is all that was there in the state of Washington. They, they, they played this little state of Washington round robin between uh, Whitworth and Pacific Lutheran. Did they play all four games against Pacific Lutheran? Who am I forgetting about? UPS. Oh, right. Puget Sound. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and so, right, I've been waiting for this game since basically February to find out if uh, Whitworth was any good. And now I'm like, oh, yeah. Also, is it that just Linfield should be up there in that top five in the elite part of our poll? And then they we might consider that they would just blow everybody, the doors off of everybody, a la Mount Union, Westminster, a la uh, North Central Aurora, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I know I've talked about Linfield in this space looking like the Linfield of old uh, this season, and they went to work on Whitworth on Saturday. Uh, the Wildcats scored touchdowns on five of their eight first-half possessions. Whitworth's first half featured just one pirate snap in plus territory, and that play ended with a Linfield interception. Um, two years ago, this game was played at the Pine Bowl, and they ran out of daylight. We talked about that last week, I think. Uh, Saturday, Linfield turned the lights out on Whitworth pretty early in the same way that they've done to everybody that they've played this season. All right, get to four minutes and 45, four more seconds, and you've got a tight five you can take out on the road. That's pretty good. Um, we then go to the other evening game. Uh, it's like you switch from that game to the next one, and then if you weren't paying attention to the Carnegie Mellon-Westminster game and you went, I don't know, to go watch baseball or have a beer or something and come back and you've missed the fourth quarter – that game completely changes over the course of just a handful of minutes. Yeah, this was a this was a tight game into the fourth quarter, and then things really went sideways for Westminster. They had a bad punt snap that led to a loose ball scramble that ended up with Carnegie Mellon's Parker Owens recovering the ball in the end zone for a touchdown. On CMU's very next possession, the Tartans got tricky. They ran a reverse pass for another touchdown, and that 14-10 game ballooned out to a 28-10 Tartan lead, and the rest of the contest was academic. The Tartan defense was superb throughout this game. They ended with four forced turnovers of Westminster, and they yielded just six rush yards. 
Carnegie Mellon has a knack for picking off ranked pack teams. This is the fourth consecutive win they've had against a ranked opponent. We talked about your game of the week from last week, the one that you highlighted in the poll. That was the lacrosse-Oshkosh uh, game. And uh, my game of the week was center at Trinity just because I really wanted to see, I felt like, um, you know, center had, uh, center had had some impressive results on the scoreboard early in the season, but not against the quality of competition that I would like to see if I'm considering a team on my top 25 ballot and Trinity kind of made it a little bit easier for voters to figure out who the best teams in the SAA are. Yeah. And I am just going to sort of reiterate what I said last week about Trinity is that their defense is really impressive. Center entered the game averaging 38 points and 189 yards rushing per game. Trinity held the Colonels to just seven points and 180 yards total for the game. Tucker Horn had another solid game for the Tigers. He threw for three touchdowns. He ran for one more. Trinity, they should have pretty smooth sailing now until their trip to Birmingham in week 10. Center has to regroup for a home game against Birmingham Southern next Saturday. Both Trinity and Birmingham Southern played their way into our poll. You can see that poll at d3football.com slash top 25. Somehow, I'm pretty sure I've gone 288 previous podcasts without ever actually mentioning that. We'd like to recognize and thank those who make this podcast possible. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers. If you are unfamiliar with the concept of what Patreon is, Patreon is this way that people who create things can get payments from people who want to support them. So, like, it would be a bit of a hassle for us to set up a thing that said hey why don't you give us ten dollars a month uh patreon will do that for us and manage all that and that's super helpful because we can then focus on the things that we do which is like creating content like making this podcast like getting our columnists to file columns each week uh greg i tried to assign somebody a story this week about a team that had a really impressive start to the season they were unable to get that to team to get on the phone and now that story has kind of played itself out but nonetheless patreon subscribers made all of those things possible right they made it possible for us to to hire people and all sorts of stuff it'll be a fun game to have our listeners try and figure out who that story was going to be about but yes we want to thank our patreon subscribers for enabling uh, this podcast, all of the content that we put on the site, Joe Sager, Brian Lester, every week coming in, almost every week coming in with something good as long as as long as they can get interviews. And you know, thank you to again, it's you guys that make this happen, keep the site running, and thank you for subscribing. If you have friends at games this week, tell them about it. Yeah, for as little as three dollars a month, you can really help us out. That is uh, super important for us, being able to budget, being able to make things happen. So you can do that by going to patreon.com slash d3sports. Now we're joined by Dustin Johnson here in our tight five. Dustin Johnson is the head coach of William Patterson. And yes, I start talking fast because we're trying to get this in five minutes. Coach, big win Saturday against Christopher Newport. Big homecoming day. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, homecoming day was great. I mean, it was our, our president has been trying to really get our alumni re-engaged with the institution, uh, with the student athletes. He's been doing a lot around our campus with up in the fan experience. Um, so we had nice carnival atmosphere, tailgating, um, nice big bounce house balloon. We also unveiled our new mascot, Pio. So it was a big day all around during the homecoming event. 
it, our team even made it more special by coming out playing uh playing really well um, and, and a few guys having some spectacular individual performances. Hey, I know that this is a big campus in northern New Jersey, a lot of commuter students. Does this also keep the students engaged in something like this too? Uh, absolutely. You know, we had a ton of students who were on campus that day and you know, it's been a we've been known as kind of a suitcase college, uh so, you know, but now, you know, with President Hell Dobler at the helm, you know, he's really doing an outstanding job with, you know, really trying to target the students um, from outside of our state, but also in our state to be connected and want to be a part of the campus and the, the activities here at William Patterson. Big day for Spencer Lee. And then, of course, big day for Matt Clark. Uh, Lee, 20 to 23 for 387 yards and five TDs. Matt Clark was the, the big man, the big target there, 11 catches, 318 and four touchdowns. Tell us a little bit about those guys, their connection and that sort of thing. They work hard on a daily basis. You know, Spencer's first, you know, we knew Spencer was going to be a good player for us, played in a great high school program, um, had a lot of career wins coming out of high school. Um, he's a he's a football type, uh, football-minded kid, um, works hard, studies film, you know, meets with me, meets with his position coach. Um, he's just one of those guys that's a football junkie, uh, you know, wants to continue to learn and grow and get better. Uh, so he went out this week, did an excellent job handling the football, putting us in good situations. Um, and the big thing we talked about was, you know, not cr- creating turnovers, you know, and he did an outstanding job in that uh, department. Uh, Matthew Clark, uh, we think physically is not your typical Division III, uh type athlete. You know, Matt's about six foot three, probably about uh, 195 pounds. Um, he looks like a Division One wide receiver, and he played like one uh, this past weekend. Um, he works very hard at his craft, you know, and he's always asking to be pushed and finding new ways to kind of compete, uh, you know, kind of work at his position and work on his footwork and things like that. Um, and we really challenged Matt this past week with, you know, his, his route running, his separation at the, the catch point or the break point. Um, and those are things that I think he focused on throughout the practice week and it, it carried over into the game on Saturday. Last time we talked with you, podcast 236, which was March of 2019, you had been in place for a full year. Now, of course, you know, three wins under your belt here in just the first uh, you know handful of weeks of the season is already the best season that Patterson has had in a little while. What's it been like? How's the building going? And was this the trajectory you were looking for? Uh, well, you know, it's never fast enough for us as coaches and we're never happy about anything we've done. So, you know, we're always pushing. We're still looking for ways to grow. Um, you know, obviously every program has been challenged throughout the pandemic. Um, ours, you know, has been challenged as well. You know, one thing that, you know, came to fruition kind of in September was some of our upperclassmen were like, coach, you know, I kind of don't know a few guys on the team. You know, we have some new members who transferred in, you know, we got two new recruiting classes. We've went through the pandemic and we practiced in small groups. Um, so, you know, some of the defensive guys don't know the offensive guys. So, you know, and then we had a shorter camp this year. Um, you know, so all these factors, you know, kind of bubbled to the surface when we got to September and we started playing. And I kind of started looking around like, well, these guys are right. We got to start, you know, doing some things that kind of increase the communication, you know, have these guys kind of cross over, learn about, you know, different members of the organization. Um, and that's been our big focus the last, you know, three or four weeks is really just having our guys communicating with each other, starting to learn and grow um, together. You know, and, and I think had we had more time to gel and set that back in the spring and, you know, in our fall camp, I think we'd, we'd be where we are now back then. 
And you said you had a couple transfers. Now, I, I've heard that some of them are from Wesley. So, A, how are those guys getting along, integrating into the program? And B, I think you know I'm going to ask. They know you're a Salisbury guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, I make sure I take my shots when I can with those young men. They've been outstanding in our program. You know, they come from a winning culture. Um, those young men have brought in, you know, a different work ethic. They love to compete. They're highly motivated uh, individuals. So it's been a really a good marriage for us here at William Patterson, adding some of those individuals in our program. Um, and, and I'm really looking forward to keeping those guys around. There's seven of those former Wesley players on the roster for Patterson this year, Greg. Uh, some of them are getting significant playing time. Uh, we're talking about Taz Burton, Matt Gore, Will Valentine, Kaman Coleman, Daquan Knight, Keyshawn Henry, and John Devonish. Devonish, the tight end. I'm so sorry if I've mispronounced your name. Certainly, since I said it twice, at least one of them is wrong. Yeah, and I think it's. I think what Coach Johnson said there was really important about having these guys come in from a place like Wesley and the kinds of work ethic and habits that you have to play football at the level that Wesley played at and how just seven of those guys forming a pack inside of that team can really change the, you know, that's, that's a way to help change the culture there at William Patterson and get them on track and then moving in the right direction in the end Jack. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game it's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to Matt Clark of William Patterson. You may have heard him mentioned just a few short minutes ago. Even in these offense-heavy times, obviously going for more than 300 yards as a receiver is pretty rare. The 318 from Clark this uh, this week is the highest in D3 this season, and it's the only 300-plus yard game. Raekwon Davis-Hereford of Hiram had 289 on Saturday against Ohio Wesleyan, and Tanner Schminke had 255 for Central this week against Coe, meaning Clark's big day was the biggest on what was already a really big day for wideouts. My game ball is going to Lake Forest wide receiver A.J. Jackson. Jackson caught just two passes in the Foresters' 48-13 win over Illinois College, but he's getting a game ball for what he did in the return game. Illinois College Athletics has the call on this late third-quarter Blue Boys punt. Official punt crew comes out for Illinois College. Low snap, punt is up. Jackson's got a chance to return it. He'll catch it at midfield, makes one man miss. Goes right, now left. Still on his feet with blockers out in front. To the 40, 35, 30. He keeps moving. 20, hurdles the man, still going. What a play. Athleticism on display as Jackson goes all the way into the end zone for the touchdown. You may not see a better punt return this season. Jackson did a little bit of everything. 50 yards to the house. Incredible. 41-6. Don't punt to that man. They did punt to that man on the very next possession. And A.J. Jackson, public enemy number one, he is deep, ready to return the kick. If you're just joining us, one of the best kick returns I've ever seen for a touchdown. He just took it back to the house 50 yards out. Will they even kick the ball to him? There's a snap. That one's end over end. It's going to bounce at the 45. Wow, what a pickup by Jackson. He got it at the 40-yard line. He's got blockers out in front again to midfield. Oh, my goodness. Is he going to do it again? 30, still blockers, 20, 10, untouched into the end zone. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I think the best part about that play was how he was able to pick that ball off the ground. It was a short hop, and he got it in his hands comfortably. A.J. Jackson finished with three punt returns for 133 yards and the two touchdowns we just heard. 
The Foresters are off to a 5-0 start and will square off against the also undefeated Rippin' Red Hawks in Week 7. So those two punts are just six minutes apart. And that's not six minutes in game time. That is six minutes in real-world time. Uh, Jackson does make a really great pickup of the bouncing ball on that second one. And where, you know, another returner might have let it roll. And, you know, for negative... 15 negative 20 yards in the other direction Jackson turns that likely negative into a 65 yard positive and six points this is a guy who is as a sophomore already a two-time d3football.com postseason all-american destined to maybe become the first five-time d3football.com all-american oh wow venturing a little further afield for the off the beaten path highlight and I'm going to go to Lyle Illinois where Benedictine found more than a couple of ways to score and also hung onto the ball forever uh, that was one of them in a 54 to 40 win against Lakeland Benedictine had the ball for 41 minutes and 41 seconds which I'm just going to say now is not my stat not my stat and sometimes the stats software or the operators of the stats software have issues with time of possession but this one is legit uh, Lakeland had just one possession of more than two minutes, and they had no possessions of more than three minutes. This is one of those great games where at one point the score was 6-2. to two. I bet you know what that means, but here's how it sounded with Connor Fredland and Tim Folliard on the call. The kicker for Lakeland trying to make it 7 to nothing with 13-17 to go in the first quarter. The kick is blocked, and it's going to be picked up by Benedictine. And this could go all the way. As they man miss going to the 20, the 10, and in for the two-point score for the Eagles. It is 6-2. to two. Wow. By the way, credit to that broadcast crew. Those guys, Connor and Tim, they knew it was two points. While you hear the PA announcer call it a touchdown, and the graphics person put six points on the scoreboard. Uh, I'm going to roll a little bit more of that beautiful BU footage because Connor and Tim are pretty priceless here. Roll that beautiful BU footage. So Benedictine gets on the board in a very unconventional fashion. Yeah, if you got your football bingo card at home... Be sure to check off the extra point block return for two points. I don't know. I didn't have that, Tim. No. It's probably your free space. So Lakeland makes it 12-2, then 19-9, and 26-12. But the Eagles rattle off five consecutive touchdowns in less than 15 minutes of playing time, including a pick six by Chris Williams, and three touchdown passes and a touchdown run from Tyler Jarnigan. And even with a scoreless fourth quarter, it was the 54-40 final. Benedictine goes to 5-1 and one with its uh, lone loss on the season to Carroll, and Lakeland picks up its first loss of the season to fall to 4-1. and one. See, a lot of teams picking up first losses. They... Conference play gets you. For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm going to Alfred, New York, where the Alfred Saxons welcomed the Hartwick Hawks for homecoming. The Saxons fell behind 21-7 in the first half Saturday night before battling all the way back to take a 24-21 lead with 6 minutes and 30 seconds to play in the game. With less than one minute left in the game, Alfred's defense stuffed a Hartwick dive attempt on third and goal at the one-yard line. With three seconds to play, Hartwick sent the field goal unit out to try and send the game to overtime. Alfred used a timeout here, presumably to ice the kicker. But during that timeout, Hartwick head coach Mark Carr changed his mind and sent the offense back out to go for the win. Bob Cotaspoti and Pat Cotaspoti have the call from Alfred Athletics. And it looks like they're going to go for it. Well, I think, I think uh, Hartwick is going to go for it. They are. So here it is. All or nothing. 
That was Alfred's Tommy Vaughn knocking down Kyle Sicoli's floater in the end zone to preserve the Saxon win and giving Alfred a 1-0 record in Empire 8 play and a little a little new lease on the season. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday, well, it comes actually from last week's On the Spot. I'm giving away a little of spot check, but I was definitely surprised when Bates not only defeated, but manhandled Tufts on the road 33-10. to there wasn't much in Tufts' first three games that really suggested this. Jumbos lost to Trinity, Connecticut. They lost at home to Williams, and they lost at Amherst. And the you know the latter two of those are just by three points apiece. Meanwhile, Bates was also 0-3. They're under interim head coach Ed Argast after coach Malik Hall was cut loose pretty late this summer in you know, with, with some drama around it, apparently. So this game wasn't as much of a blowout as the score makes it look, however. Bates scored twice in the final 30 seconds of the game to take it from 19-10 to that 33-10 final. That included a fumble recovery returned for a touchdown as Tufts tried to pull off its own Trinity miracle. And that's a Trinity, Texas miracle, by the way, if you're a NESCAC person listening in. Um, so with about that came with about 20 seconds left. It was a big day for Brendan Costa, who threw for 254 yards for the Bobcats and three touchdowns and ran for 113 yards in the other offensive touchdown. Perhaps he heard that someone wanted a list of best dual threat quarterbacks in Region 1, and he wanted to get on that list. Kudos to the Bobcats on getting their first win of the season. And my most surprising result is Elmhurst knocking off Milliken 28-7. This is the second time Milliken has ended up here this season and not in the re- not for the reasons that you want to be in this segment. Uh, after losing their first four games of the season by an average of 31 points, it was the Blue Jays' defense that took over to put Elmhurst in the win column for the first time in 2021. Mark Kruger of Suncom TV has the call early in the third quarter. First and 10, Big Blue for their old 23-yard line, Port. He'll step up and now run the ball, and he's going to be brought down at the 25. It's loose. The Blue Jays have recovered, and it's going to be a touchdown. I believe it was Zach Hazelhoff who created the fumble. And Bryce Gable with the recovery and the score. That scoop and score put the Blue Jays up 14-0, and that was all Elmhurst would need. The win snaps a 12-game losing streak for the Blue Jays dating all the way back to September 28, 2019. And this is their first win at Langhorst Field since a 56-14 win over Milliken on November 5, 2016. That's not my stat. First home win since 2016. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Lots of things are not my stat, but this one is my stat of the week. And that stat is Mount Union running the ball just 20 times on the afternoon in its 63 to nothing win against Wilmington. It's certainly their lowest number of carries on the season, but it's not that they were unsuccessful running the ball or seemed to intentionally go away from it. Mount Union took just 51 offensive snaps as a total on Saturday in that win. So the Purple Raiders picked up 221 yards on those 20 carries, and we're going to presume you can do the math. Doom, 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 doom. No, 221 divided by 20. You know, the common core people would say make it 220 over 20 and then 
you've got 11 yards of rush. I have no idea if they would say that, and I'll go ask my uh, my 16-year-old daughter a little bit later. But nonetheless, that shift in offense that we first saw in the spring season seems to still be in place in Alliance, Ohio. Mountain Union averaged nearly 43 carries a game in 2019. Then they averaged 31 in that limited spring season, and they're averaging just 28 here in the fall. A few years ago, we probably would have chalked this up to Mountain Union just deciding it could do whatever it wanted on offense, and they could keep entire swaths of their playbook under wraps and well i mean maybe that's this as well but regardless it's still my stat of the week way up in forest grove oregon pacific's past defense had a very nice day against puget sound in a 69-6 northwest conference victory the boxers recorded three pick sixes against the loggers intercepted eight total puget sound passes and broke up nine puget sound passes that's more breakups than taylor swift passed Okay, now you're down to four minutes and 30 seconds to get to your tight five. You're on it. These are all great stats, but the stat of the week is the boxers recorded a total of 203 yards in interception returns while allowing Puget Sound just a total of 227 yards of offense. It's a good time for the boxers to discover some high-level pass defense as they'll get their turn to take on Wyatt Smith and Linfield next Saturday. Over under on number of interception return yards for Pacific in week seven. 0.5. I was going to say, that's almost the only answer you can give, right? I'm going to take the under. Same. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. It's the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter. We know you have questions. Goodness knows that's true. And you can uh, fire them at us on Twitter by adding D3Football with the D3FB hashtag. Or you just wait till we put out, you know, the call for that on Sunday. You have to be paying attention during the NFL games on Sunday in order to get a question to us. And in this case, we've gotten one from Identity Theft Mac, who is at Mac Theft, and you heard the second A, I'm sure. Uh, in way too early bracketology, what's going to be the cutoff for hosting versus going on the road for the tournament? Great question. And I think there's some questions about the playoffs this year. There are people who are like, oh, now there's six regions instead of four. So how are they going to set the bracket up? Here's the thing. We are now like literally 22 years into having a playoff system that is not defined solely by what region you are assigned to in the NCAA Division Three pantheon. So it doesn't really matter if you're in Region 5. You could be playing in a bracket that has teams from Region 3 or Region 6. Probably not teams from Region 1 because geographically that doesn't make sense. But I don't really see that there's going to be a significant difference in the way bracketology and home games are assigned this year. No, I don't think so. And I think those games are going to be assigned as they have been, where you're going to be sort of looking at the top four teams in each quadrant. And then those teams are going to host and you're going to get some geographical weirdness where maybe something in the Northeast. uh, And I'm not, I haven't looked closely enough yet to know if we're looking at, teams all the way in new england that are so far away from everybody else that we're going to get a weird matchup there but you're going to soon to too soon to know it basically matters if hussin will win the ccc and conference play just started yes and then you know linfield and mary Harden baylor they look like they're on track to win their leagues and you might get some weird matchups there um depending on whether or not the whether or not the selection and seeding committee is able to keep them apart for more than one round. Yeah. I mean, the basic super basic answer to this question is in order to host a game in the playoffs, 
you have to be within the top four teams in your little quadrant of the bracket and have a team that is not in the top four within 500 miles of you. If you don't have one of those, then, you know, stuff gets crazy, I guess, basically. You could have, you shouldn't, <laughs> you could have Linfield play Mary Harden Baylor in the first round. That shouldn't happen. It probably, unfortunately, would happen in the second round because that's just, it's money. It's all about money. The uh, NCAA Division Three budget is not exactly the same as the Division One basketball tournament. So sometimes... They make some concessions for geography and for the budget. Um, I, to have Linfield and Mary Harden Baylor in the first round is ever so slight an exaggeration on my part, but we've seen those teams play in the second round or Linfield play NASC team in the second round multiple times. Yes, and that's I think that's that would be the thing that I'm looking for there is to see if they build an ASC, Skyac, NWC pod which is a thing that they've done previously which is not awesome but you know it's that's that's how they do it generally speaking though if you want to host games you either need to be undefeated and then there's going to be some one loss teams that will host games as well but not all one loss teams are going to host games but that's if you're looking at for like if the question is about what's the sort of record cutoff you need 10 and 0 or 9 and 1 is generally it and if you're 9 and 1 you know Nine and one may not get you a home game. So if you have questions, you know how to do it. I said it before. That's the thing that Twitter is good at is letting you guys contact us and then letting me snark back at you if you ask a stupid question. I mean, I'm just being honest. <laughs> it is a thing that I still occasionally do. And we're going to look ahead at uh, games to watch for week seven. And for this week, I'm keeping an eye on RPI at Hobart. So, you know, currently neither of these teams are ranked. But there's obviously a good possibility for the winner to jump back into the poll. Hobart basically only has three teams in the top 100 of Division Three on its schedule, at least in you know in my estimation. Ithaca was one of those that game two weeks ago, the loss at Ithaca. RPI this week, and then Hobart goes to Union on October 30th. RPI, obviously pretty similar, other than not having played any of those big three yet. So you might look at the last couple of RPI scores and have concerns, but you know University of Rochester scored with about 90 seconds left to turn that 38-14 game into 38-22, and I think those two scores look significantly different. I think if you look at a 24-point game, you don't necessarily have those doubts. Similarly, right, Buff State scored twice in the final two and a half minutes on Saturday. They turned that 24-3 game into 24-16 final. On paper, that looks really close. It was not. So, uh, you know, this is another one of these big matchups among the big three, uh, sorry, the big four in the Liberty League that's going to end up deciding that automatic bid. And frankly, maybe knocking everybody out of at-large possibilities. And for my game of the week, I'm doing Friday Night Lights in the Centennial this week when number 14 Johns Hopkins takes on number 21 Muhlenberg. These are the first and sixth ranked pass offenses in the division, and they've had two weeks to prep for this game, so buckle up. For Muhlenberg and Michael Natkowski, this is a must-win game, both to stay in the hunt for the Centennial Conference Championship and to have any realistic hope of returning to the postseason. For Johns Hopkins, a win here puts the Blue Jays in a very strong position with one significant challenge, a game with Susquehanna, left between them and a return to the tournament. These are two of the most entertaining offenses in the division, and I'm excited that the deck is clear on Friday night to watch this one exclusively. 
you're in the Pacific Coast. Are you going to be able to get off work by 4 o'clock to watch this game? Maybe you don't want to say that out loud. I don't. <laughs> you know, we, I've, we have a very liberal streaming policy at work, so maybe I won't be out of the office at 5, but I, I will have... I will have a, a window open for for Muhlenberg and, and Hopkins. I've actually seen people talk about that with like uh, MLB playoff games, right? That, you know, now that streaming is so prevalent, it's maybe not necessary to start those East Coast games at 835. Maybe you can start them at 715 and people, more people, you know, younger people can see them. Young people watching baseball? What is this? 1954, I guess. The roulette wheel is spinning. And it's fallen into number 53, counting on my fingers. 53 turns out to be Williams at Hamilton. Williams at Hamilton, that is a NESCAC game. Obviously, it's not one of the ones that has a rivalry uh, trophy associated with it already. Yet. If you don't know the drill, our goal is to preview this game and then give it a trophy. Hamilton and Middlebury play for the old rocking chair. Hamilton and Williams... Whatever they'll play for, we'll decide here over the course of the next couple of minutes. But also, you know, Greg, this used to be a game that Williams dominated for, I think, literally decades. And then in like 2015 and 2016, Hamilton, under Coach Dave Murray, kind of broke through, won a couple of games. If you had pulled someone out of 2002 and dropped them into 2016 and said that, you know, Hamilton was going to beat Williams in football, they probably would have thought you were crazy. The craziest thing that happened in 2016 was Hamilton beating Williams in football? I mean, a lot changes. I mean, we we make jokes about how sort of the top of the division stays the same, but a lot does change underneath. Um, and, you know, back in 2002-ish, like Teal was in the playoffs. They were very good. And now Teal is on, I think, like a 35-game losing streak. Um, a lot of things change. But this one, you've got Williams 4-0 in NESCAC play, Hamilton 2-2. Two and two. Those are uh, that's not out of the realm of possibility, right? So Hamilton is uh, they beaten Bowdoin and Colby so far. They lost big to Trinity, Connecticut on Saturday, and they lost to Wesleyan back in NESCAC week two, which you know translates to real life week four. It's very interesting to see how this uh, how this game goes down, right? I mean Hamilton, obviously, I really like what they've done under Dave Murray. You know, they used to be a guaranteed 0 and 8 or at best a guaranteed 1 and 7 and you know now they've come out and they've won a few games over the course of the past couple of years uh it looks like they're pretty pass heavy this year i'm just kind of looking at box scores cuz this is how we do it right um i have had a hard time looking at this game and looking at what hamilton's done this year and trying to discern a personality of this team or even you know what they necessarily like to do on offense. Joe Cairns looks pretty efficient, like against Colby, 16 to 22 passing for 293 yards. They don't seem to focus on running the ball very much. And I don't know what else to say. NESCAC is wild and unpredictable. Bowden almost got a win against Wesleyan this weekend. That's wild. That came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, should be, should be a good game. You never know what's going to happen. I think I favor Williams there. They've had, they've been, their four and is pretty impressive. Favor Williams, but, who knows? Hamilton will be in it. I always feel like Williams, as long as Bobby Mamoron is here, I think as long as he's there, they have a, a they should be favored in most, if not all, games in the uh, NESCAC. I really think that people had some pretty high hopes 
for Williams this season. I mean, they beat Colby 42 nothing on Saturday, uh, and the Hamilton win at Colby was 27-14. to So that probably gives you some indication of the relative strength. Does it give us any indication of what this rivalry trophy should be named? So I've had some I've I've had some thoughts. Thoughts is later. It is. So Hamilton, obviously named after Alexander Hamilton. Williams, as you may or may not know, named after Ephraim Williams. Both were both were revolutionary era or pre-revolutionary era uh military men. Hmm. So maybe, maybe a trophy here could be like a revolutionary era musket or like one of those drums that they beat on. I am now, that makes me think about this blog post that we did 12 ever ago, where I created a fake rivalry game, which was uh, named the old funky knickers. And that was uh, a, uh, a rivalry between uh, Bluffton and Frostburg, which is really kind of the inspiration for us doing this now on the podcast umpteen years later. So with that in mind, why don't we make this one for, the old musket ball. I love it. I love the history. I love the crickets, but that will do. So uh, that's good because the only other Hamilton Williams reference I could try to make was something tortured where I would try to tie something in through Formula One. And I don't know Formula One well enough to do that. So that is Hamilton hosting Williams with the old musket ball on the line. You heard it here first. Now it's time to go on the spot. On the spot for week seven means I get to go first because I have this big, thick notebook of previous podcasts. I have been able to go into the archives and pick out a previous classic on the spot game, which I like quite a bit. And I'm going to bring it back and uh, give you a shot at it, Greg. This one, this game is called Al Mullen. And what Al Mullen is, is you need to pick two teams that win on Saturday, but you need to mispronounce the names of the teams as if you were a random fan or perhaps an ESPN bracket show broadcaster from 2003. For those of you who don't remember the reference, we make it multiple times. In 2003, that broadcast, I am sitting with a guy uh, in my ear at the ESPN zone in Washington, DC, all prepared to talk about Allegheny and to talk about Muhlenberg and the uh, anchor pronounces Allegheny Algaheny and then pronounces Muhlenberg Mullenberg, which meant that I really couldn't then talk about those teams without showing them up. And I decided not to show them up, which is good because then I got like seven more of those gigs with ESPN. That is enough time. I think for Greg, you to come up with some common mispronunciations of teams that are playing in week seven. Ooh. All right. I need, I need two. You need two. And you have to be able to, um, you need to be able to mangle both teams in it. So like co is probably out, right? Capital probably not super useful here. No Pacific probably not going to work for you. And I'm going to take the Utica Pioneers to knock off Sunny Brockport. That seems like a perfectly reasonable pick, whether it's sunny or cloudy or raining in Brockport on that day. So that's one. That's Utica over Sunny Brockport. I've written down Utica, U-T-T-I-C-A. That's how I'm going to know how to pronounce it. And I am going to go also here with Monmouth. Uh, Monmouth to beat... 
Belois. I think I heard Belois. Belois, of course, is Beloit. Um, other ones that I really like uh, that I've heard just, you know, good mispronunciations that haven't necessarily even made it into the pronunciation 101 reel are like Bodoin. That's a good one. I love that one. I actually may have even said that myself at some point in like 1995. Um, Gustavus Adolphus is also a good one. St. Olaf. For people who only know Josh Gad characters from animated movies, um, really, frankly, a good portion of the MIAC is subject to this sort of uh, bad pronunciation. Shenandoah. I've heard Shenandoah. That's a good one. Yeah, there's lots of uh, there's lots of good options. Oh, and and Hussin, of course. I think I've heard like four or five different ways. We've got Utica over Sunny Brockport, and we had Monmouth over Belois. All right, this week, Pat, you're on the spot. Is four letter words you can say on on air. I want you to I want you to find three teams with four letters or less in their names to get wins this weekend. Bonus on the spot points if you stick only to schools with four letters in their name, but I will accept four or less. All right, I like it. I'm scrolling through and I immediately see that I'm not going to take MIT over Merchant Marine. That is four or less, but I don't believe that's the proper winner of that game. I'm going to take right away Dean over Keystone. I think that's a, a good way to start this game. I am super, super intrigued by TCNJ at Kane because I could go either way on this and so could the game. I'm going to pause. A, I'm going to put a pin in that one and come back. I'm looking at Hope Olivet. I think this is also a pick em sort of game, but I feel like I need to make a pick here because we're, you know, 40 what minutes into this podcast. So I'm going to take Hope over Olivet. And as I keep scrolling down, wow, Knox Grinnell is super tempting. Grinnell has been playing fairly decently this year. And, you know, Knox beat Belois 42 to nothing on uh, on Saturday. But I don't know if that translates into this sort of thing. Uh, we've got Alma against Adrian. And I don't, that's kind of a pick em type game as well. So I think I'm going to have to scroll back up and I'm going to take Knox over Grinnell as my third one. So I've got... What did I get? So I avoided the TCNJ um, Kane question conundrum because Kane's been pretty playing pretty well. So I've taken Dean over Keystone, and I've taken Hope over Olivet, and I have taken Knox over Grinnell. Those are four-letter words you can say on this podcast, which is pretty f***ing cool. <laughs> I will prob I'll probably remember to beep that out. I might not. <laughs> I'm just excited you brought Prairie Fire back around. All right. Ah, uh, the prairie fire. And of course, the uh, spot check, a quick spot check on last week's results. I asked Greg to come a little bit closer and give us which game of a pair of games would be closer. And well, I'm not going to keep singing this. My God, that's ridiculous. It wasn't pretty uh, because this is a difficult game, right? Given the choice of DePaul against Wittenberg or Rowan against Kane, Greg correctly chose DePaul-Wittenberg, which was a three-point game, and Kane had beaten Rowan by seven. Our second pair was John Carroll versus Capital and Mount Union versus Wilmington, and Greg took Mount Wilmington, which was the logical choice, but it turned out to be wrong, and not because Mount Union ran the ball just 20 times. It's because they won 63 nothing. John Carroll only managed to win 38-7. to and then we're finishing with Catholic versus WPI and Minnesota Morris against Finlandia. Greg took CUA WPI, which was not the closer game, as Catholic won by 23 and Morris won by 21. Go Cardinals.
Break them up. Last week, I asked Pat to pick winners in the four games that matched up teams that were winless on the season. Pat went with all of the home teams, and that paid off with big wins for Simpson. Knox, again, we can't get Knox out of the podcast. They're, 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 they're literally on fire. And Bethany, as Pat mentioned earlier, Bates prevented the sweep as the Bobcats won at Tufts 33-10. to 10. I think you're down to four minutes and ten seconds away from getting that tight five. You are on fire yourself this weekend. That was one thought that I had. I've had some other thoughts to say about Wilkes in terms of top 25 candidacy. So I wasn't like looking at putting the Colonels on my ballot this week, but I wanted to know if I needed to include their info with the stuff that we send to voters every week. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. And the answer is decidedly no, or at least not yet. So Wilkes is 5-0. and and three of those five wins are against winless teams, or against Keystone, Alvernia, and Stevenson, who are combined 0 and 17 on the season. So the other two teams are Misericordia, which is two and three, and Albright, which is two and four. And those are not hideous records on their on the surface, right? But dig a little bit deeper. Misericordia is two and three, but the two wins are against Keystone and Albright. Albright is the only team in this whole little circle that has a win outside of the group. That's a week two win at Western Connecticut. So with that in mind, I'll be checking back on Wilkes after this week's game, which happens to be at Widener. There's something about conference play and unpredictability that I really like. Two weeks ago, we had three undefeated MIAA teams and a clear favorite. And today we have zero undefeated MIAA teams. And I have no idea who the favorite is in that conference. Carnegie Mellon has thrown a wrinkle into the pack standings. And sometimes you get surprise results like Elmhurst that won't impact the title chase. Familiarity and rivalries with conference opponents beget close games and unpredictable results. So it's easy to look ahead sometimes. I'm guilty of it. And I have to remind myself that we're going to see some unexpected stuff that's going to change the context of games that are already on the radar for weeks 10 and 11. I was watching the end of the war on 94 on Saturday night, and uh, UW Stout scored with 219 left to clinch that win at Eau Claire. I know we've talked a little bit about broadcasters this year. We've talked a little bit about broadcasters in this podcast. I'm just going to take a second to caution young people who are broadcasting games. You almost never hear professional national level broadcasters blame an outcome on the officiating. So don't go there. That's the sort of thing that if you are a student and you're thinking about, you know, going into broadcasting, which maybe if you're broadcasting a, a game like some of these games, you might be doing. That is not something that's done. Figure out another way to get your point across. And then I have a one more thought about UW Oshkosh and UW Whitewater playing this weekend, like a bonus game of the week that we didn't talk about. Whitewater's going to Oshkosh this week. This is It's week seven, and this is Oshkosh's first home game this season. And that's, that's not cool. I'm, I don't think that that's great. Um, but this game got me thinking about the last time that Wisconsin Oshkosh played at home. It was the last regular season game of 2019. Oshkosh pulled off an upset in that game against Whitewater, which kind of had important impacts on the Pool C situation, the tournament. Um, on John that, Carroll, on Susquehanna. Yeah. Yes, possibly Ithaca maybe got bumped out there. A lot of teams, the bubble popped on the very last game of the regular season. Also, that game kind of changed the trajectory of Wisconsin Whitewater. Um, Oshkosh intercepted, then starting quarterback for Whitewater, something like four times in a row in the fourth quarter of that game. It sort of 
forced a quarterback change at Whitewater. Max Myler started the next week, brought Whitewater to the Stag Bowl, and he's been he's been great through those playoffs and then through this year as well. So a lot of a lot of interesting stuff happened last time we had a game up at Wisconsin Oshkosh, and this this should be another really good uh, WIAC game. I was watching that game in the hotel room somewhere within, you know, a stone's throw of the Meadowlands. We had just been at that uh, Cortica Jug game between Ithaca and Cortland. And then we went to this great little Italian corner store place that uh, Jim Catanzaro uh, alerted us to. Jim Catanzaro from Lake Forest College. (laughs) Coach Cat. Jim Catanzaro. Jim, glad to have you with us. My pleasure. Oh, we had already dropped Keith off at the train station before we got the great sandwiches, and then we came back to the hotel, stuffed ourselves with hoagies, and watched that game on the big screen. And that was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 289, released on October 11th, 2021. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the season. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, fellow alumnus about the show or about the website. And you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. I'm sure that's a thing that somewhere in some algorithm people think is still pretty cool. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the aforementioned D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Greg is at Wally Wabash. And we have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. It's also a nice place to go when, you know, Facebook goes down for six hours. But you can follow d3football.com on Facebook, assuming Facebook is operating. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to William Patterson, Coach Dustin Johnson, for joining us as a guest. And thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com, Keith McMillan. And special thanks to co-host Greg Thomas. The cutting room floor on this podcast in the last six weeks is pretty littered with a bunch of stuff that otherwise I think normally would have gone in. It was pre-Marty then. Pre-Marty Favret, pre-Tom Clark. So we're like big on the Knox Prairie fire. We seem to meander through the NESCAC quite a bit on the podcast this year. I feel like... uh, I feel like that's where we're that's where things are changing. People say we only talk about the front runners in this podcast. Clearly are not listening to this podcast. No, we talk I mean we did we did lead and end with WIAC. But those are I mean, that was the lead story. There's no question about that. You're not gonna lead with Monmouth Chicago, which we didn't even talk about. Here's the one thing I guess that we didn't really talk about, other than mentioning that Tanner Schminke caught 255 yards worth of passes. Uh, we did not mention that they came from Blaine Hawkins, who was 32 of 43 for 503 yards and six touchdowns. Trevor Castle, whose name I'll get right this week, for the uh, central broadcaster who was putting that uh, Gilardi Trophy stuff out on Twitter. is like, well, I mean, certainly absolutely possible. This guy is playing out of his mind right now. Yes, and I did not mind central for stat of the week this week because I, and you can go there just about every week and find something crazy out of their box score. It, I mean, 
their offense is super, super good. We may have to have uh, five minutes at some point. Tied five with Blaine Hawkins. Maybe this is a team that can go one round further, but man, in that part of the country, you are going to get one game that you can win, and then it's going to be tough. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.